This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by the editor of our Red Box Daily Email, Phil Webster, our editor of Property and Personal Finance, Anne Ashworth and Robbie Millen, our literary editor. Here are our topics. The Queen's speech focused on the extension of right to buy to housing association tenants. In my view, it's right to place an emphasis on home ownership. Why should we deny this right of passage to younger people? But there are millions who cannot afford to take this step and must rely on rented accommodation. Whoever wants to win the 2020 election needs to get together a workable policy for the provision of better quality homes for this group. The Labour leadership race is happening far too soon. Contenders exhausted by the election are having to fight again for four months, and no one really knows what they should be saying and doing to please a Labour electorate whose makeup remains a mystery. Will it be Andy, Liz or Yvette? Last week, Geoffrey Spector, a 54-year-old British man suffering from an inoperable tumour on his spine, went to the Dignitas Clinic in Switzerland to end his life. It's cruel that UK law forces ill people to travel abroad to get a dignified, humane exit from the life that they no longer wish to live. So those are our topics, from the right to buy to the right to die. We will start, though, with the Queen's speech. We are meeting just before uh, the Queen has actually started to deliver the words drafted for her by her, her government. So some of you listening may know a little bit more about the Queen's speech than than us, but we've got a good guide. And Anne Ashworth, at the heart of the Queen's speech, is this proposal to extend the right to buy. Some people think that David Cameron wasn't expecting to win a majority and was expecting the Liberal Democrats to perhaps stop him from implementing this policy. But he's he's going ahead with it. You you don't mind the policy. You worry about the lack of um, help for renters. I like the idea that the government supports home ownership. I I think that that is the right way for them to go. However, the right to buy policy has huge underlying problems. Asking housing associations to sell their properties to tenants 
and also replace those homes. And we know there'll be a massive delay between the selling off of these properties and the provision of new homes. However that rolls out, we need to be concerned about the millions out there, 4.8 million households at the last count, who rely on the private rented sector. They are a growing but forgotten group who need better quality rented homes at more affordable prices. And I worry that no party, particularly the Conservatives, has really got a handle on the problems that these people have, these young people who may face going into retirement still renting because they can't get deposits together. When are we going to get some decent rental blocks like those in America, like those in continental Europe at affordable prices. Labour had some policies for this sector, but rent, none rent, of them rent, were really worked. Rent work. controls were one of them. <laughs> well, rent controls would have, in the short term, driven amateur landlords out of the business and driven rents further up. That was just a short term solution that would not have worked. We need long term solutions to encourage our pension funds to put real money into this sector to build blocks in which people can live for five to 10 years, save up for home ownership if they want, and be able to have some money left over to be, to be able to do so. Isn't, isn't it just slightly simpler than you su suggest? Isn't it really just we need a massive increase in house building, a massive increase in supply? Some of that will be rented. Some of that will become affordable housing for people to, to purchase. I'm not quite sure what you're proposing is something designated for, for rental only. Yeah, in which people can live until they can save up for the deposit on a home. I mean, don't let's even get started on all the plans for housing. It seems to me politicians put on a high-vis jacket and a hard hat and suddenly homes are built. It doesn't happen like that. Two million homes could be built on ex-government land, but every house builder will tell you trying to get your hands on those plots is incredibly difficult and that seems to be another area on which there is no workable policy in my mind what what is the problem here phil because most people agree that we need to build a lot more houses some people say 250,000 a year some say 300,000 a year there doesn't seem to be much disagreement on on that but there just doesn't seem to be the will at the top of government is because this happened under Labour as it's happened under five no. years of coalition government is it the NIMBY vote what, what what's the problem I think it's all those things it's getting people getting people to do it and I I, I think this is one of the bills that um, David Cameron never really thought he'd have to implement I think it's I think there are several uh, that are in the Queen's speech that uh, would have died during the talks with the Liberal Democrats, and this is one of them. This particular bill, it's, it sounds good to be extending the right to buy uh, to hundreds of thousands more people, but I think the figures show that for every 10 council houses sold off, only one low-price home was built to replace them and this Greg, bill Greg Clark though the new community secretary he was interviewed I think on Radio 4 the other morning and he said the stat you quoted is true but he said this is a new policy and it will be one for one am I being far too I think you're, uh, I mean, he, soft he, he, to believe I, that he means it I, I think he means it I think he's a, he's a very good minister but I think he's going to find it very hard it's based on the fact that 
the councils are supposed to finance these rather big discounts, up to 100,000, by selling off their expensive properties. And the, I think it was the Institute for Fiscal Studies said that the figures were based on council houses being sold off for as much as 400,000 in areas like uh, East Anglia. There are no council houses worth 400,000 in East Anglia. There are a lot of holes in this policy, and I think in the weeks since the policy was unveiled, more and more holes have been found. They're now stuck with it, as they are with lots of other things. And uh, they've got to improve this policy as it goes through, I would guess. Are you a critic, Robbie Millen, of this policy as well? Well, I think anything that sort of breaks the stranglehold of either local authorities or housing associations is probably a good thing. Just uh, allowing people more freedom to move around is always a good thing. But um, I think David Cameron, if he'd listened to his guru, Steve Hilton who's just got a book out, More Human. I think it's more ex-guru than ex-guru. <laughs> but it's a, he's got quite a good chapter on how to deal with the housing uh, shortage, because it is, a, I think, a question of we need to build more. Given he's a guru, he tends towards a radical, and I think he, he just as much attacks the sort of the big four building uh, firms, Barrett's and the Barclays and so on. You know, they're sitting on 300,000 plots. So one of his ideas, which I thought was radical and very free market, was to sort of get behind the self-build revolution instead of sort of selling off land in big parcels which suits the big four mm. uh, allow people which is to a big part of what happens in europe mm. exactly in america mm. and elsewhere and that could actually just change the, the the nature of the game i just think trust people to um uh, you know look out for themselves that usually works rather than trying to plan it especially when we have such a bureaucratic planning system mm. Anne ashworth if you change the planning permission on farming land in the southeast and turn it into land that can be used for building property, you can increase its value by a hundredfold. And the Adam Smith Institute estimate that just 2% of Greenbelt, if it was changed planning permission, it would provide enough land for 10 years of, of house building. Do you see any politician on the horizon who will have the the will or the courage to do that and confront the people who do not want houses built in their backyard? It's absolutely true. There, there are plenty of tracts of what we call green bed land that are scrappy, not particularly no. attractive, not lush, verdant acres, which the, <laughs> which the term greenbelt land conjures up. And also, they tend to be close to amenities like schools and roads, which makes them the ideal plots for homes. However, I think politicians of all colours are absolutely terrified of the NIMBY protest. No local politician ever got re-elected on the basis that he promoted development in his area. He will get re-elected if he opposed development in his area. And because of the vast numbers of people in this country who are relying on their property for their retirement, it is their... their greatest asset, they see any development in their vicinity on whatever kind of plot it is as a threat to the value of that asset and then so are minded to oppose it and thus um, politicians need the votes of that group who tend to be older people and this becomes too difficult a problem and it's one they don't want to confront. Is, is, is it fair, Robbie Millen, to say that just as the Labour Party have perhaps had this huge public sector vested interests within their ranks that prevent the Labour Party tackling issues like the deficit. The Tories have this older, home-owning demographic 
within its um, party, within its uh, voting bloc, that stops it building houses for the new generation. <sighs> Two vested interests as powerful and as, as dangerous as each other in just different ways. On the face of it, yes, but I, I, I think there are, comes moments when politicians can actually break through those because the people that own, you know, let's say the older, let's say Times readers um, who, who, who might live in the green belt, they also have grandchildren who are trying to get on the housing ladder. Mm. I think generally people can be persuaded to uh, vote against their own immediate self-interest. They, they do want houses for their grandchildren, but they want them to be somewhere else. <laughs> oh, <laughs> cynic, <laughs> cynic. I think, I think, I'm, I'm, these, I, I think often politicians think certain things cannot be done because no one's had the guts to do it. But final, final word on this topic to you, Anne. We're struggling with the legacy of the appallingly designed new homes put up in the 60s and 70s Ew. that were yeah. neither contextual, attractive, energy efficient or anything they are very often a blot on the landscape yeah. and it is the sight of such developments that puts you off anything new being built mm. my view is that Miss Steve Hilton should have told the house builders to start thinking more about aesthetics about new homes that are contextual fit into where they are that are energy efficient and provide something wonderful to look at and then more people would support them there's not enough talk about aesthetics and about contextual architecture in this debate the worst i so agree with that the worst thing that could happen for house building is 400,000 ugly houses built built one year and that would put off people for a generation <laughs> yeah. of having another lot of houses built phil your your topic um is the labor leadership race and i think you're a little bit more excited by <laughs> your team norwich's promotion but you're probably one of the people in the country more excited than most <laughs> at the labor leadership race tell us why we should be interested in it because at the moment labor just seem slightly irrelevant they do i mean uh, the the government is is governing and labor is just trying to um pick a leader uh, it's a weird situation because even as this contest goes on the electorate that is going to decide who the Labour leader is going to be is being formed. We know that 200,000 odd of current party members will have a say but uh, also people can just sign up for three quid to be registered supporters of the Labour Party and have their say and if you're in a union you can sign up as an affiliated supporter and have a vote for nothing. Now, we don't know how many people there are going to be by August and September when this vote is going on who will decide who is going to be the next leader. We don't really know anything about the makeup, other than that in the Blair years the party membership tended to be Blairite. Whether that's changed greatly during Ed Miliband's time, we don't know. So we've got three or four candidates out there at the moment making their pitches, but not quite sure whom they're making those pitches to. And it's confusing, and they'll, they'll, I, I imagine that as this contest goes on, you're going to hear some strange things coming out of the mouths of, for example, Andy Burnham, who's been portrayed as the union candidate. Don't he has think some significant sort of Blair right, right wing, left wing, these terms are just so old hat and inadequate in some ways. But he's got Charlie Faulkner and Rachel Reeves backing him. He's he's not just got sort of old fashioned Labour Absol supporters, has he? He's, he's, he seems like he's more interesting potentially as a candidate than some of the caricatures suggest. Oh, he is. And I mean, but a lot of that's 
his own fault. He has been playing to that uh, union audience during the last parliament. There's no doubt about that. When he was he, shadowing on health in particular. Uh, he, he, he opposed things on health like privatisation that he was happy to go along with during the, uh, the last uh, Labour government. But yes, when he entered parliament, uh, Andy Burnham, who I know very well, was seen as a Blairite. He worked in those days for Tessa Jowell, the ultimate Blairite. And he has moved in a certain direction. Uh, in this contest, we then have Liz Kendall, who hates the label, but is the Blairite candidate. She will be backed by most of what are seen as the old Blairites. Now, what we just don't know is how many of the people out there like what she's saying. She's certainly coming over as the candidate who's prepared to say anything, <laughs> however unpopular it might be with the parliamentary party, where Blairism is now out of fashion. I'd say only 40 uh, of the uh, 40, 50 of the MPs that you could really put in the in the Blairite category. So she. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. She has fewer MPs to back her than uh, the third main candidate, Yvette Cooper and Andy Burnham, but we'll see how that plays out. That's why I'm finding it interesting because because of the mystery, the uncertainty of how those... Uh, massive voters out there mm. are going to go when the time comes. Robbie Millen, um, I suspect a lot of times readers will be more inclined to support Liz Kendall's policies, mm. modernising policies, than Andy Burnham's, for example. But is the danger... We've seen the left split in large parts of the world, in Germany, Australia, mm. Canada. The danger, of course, when you have the Scottish Nationalists and the Greens on the march, is that Liz Kendall might potentially appeal more to people who are going to vote Conservative, but she could split the split the Labour Party. And that's that's the real challenge for the opposition party at the moment. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for most voters, the, the, the ideological policy differences between uh, Liz Kendall and Andy Burnham just are pretty invisible. I mean, from, from what I gather, Liz Kendall's says sane things about the future of the health service and so on and good luck to her and all that but I, th I, I just think generally most voters will see three or four forty something vaguely attractive career politicians who are all quite or, va or vaguely unattractive well they're, they're sort of they're, they're not terrifying no but so they're 
They're you know, pretty how, nice, actually. Yeah, all yeah, three I, of them. I think so. Quite yeah. probably fairly pleasant, <laughs> but uh, you know, innocuous. I mean, what what's the difference between them? It's a shame that someone like Dan Jarvis didn't break through. At least has a different backstory and has killed people rather than just sort of bored people to death. And <laughs> um, Phil hasn't mentioned Mary Cray, Cray who's yeah. also standing. Because there, there are three women in this contest. Um, do you think uh, having a, a woman against David Cameron ha- ha- has much of an advantage or you're not interested in that? I just, I just suspect that um, it won't make any difference at all because I, th- I think probably most voters would just see a career politician who hasn't got sort of scars on their back from either running a business or just being older and having lived a little. You know, well, you always want to go back One career to... politician against another. Yeah, OK, um, there may be yeah. a... He's made a career of it now. (laughs) (laughs) And Ashworth, do any of the candidates strike you as someone you could potentially see as a future PM, or are you missing Chaka Muna from the rest? Now, as somebody who enjoys the spectator sport uh, aspect of politics, I'd quite like to see a really feisty woman leader coming up against Cameron at parliamentary, in Parliament and I think that could be hugely entertaining. But hey, politics and the running of the country. Is there a country, feisty woman amongst those three? I, Yvette Cooper is a feisty woman, you know, so well, I would enjoy a... that confrontation. However, politics is not supposed to keep me entertained. <laughs> and my other strongest feeling here is, an, is this is a mystery, but in a different way from what Phil says. If all these people so violently disagreed with Ed Miliband for yes. so many months before the election, mm. why didn't any of them mention it? <laughs> In what what mm, there's a shameless quality to think some of that, overtook yeah. them that they were all filled with the deepest of misgivings, apparently, mm-hmm. but none of them voiced those. And I think that is the kind of thing that the electors will remember, saying, well hey, you supported all those policies and then you didn't. So how can I really know you and feel that I can rely on you? And I think the outcome of the election showed that people's instinctive feeling towards Ed Miliband, that he was the guy that went against his brother, was there in their minds when they voted. And that these were the people that have come out against this friend and colleague, Ed Miliband, and said that the man got it all wrong and that's what will stick in their minds come the next election. So, And I, yeah, I agree, and I think a lot of those candidates, the ones we've even mentioned, would agree with you totally and found it... Uh, I mean, loyalty is an important thing in political parties, particularly in the Labour Party, and a lot of... Over the, over the decades, Labour politicians have shut up while disastrous leaders have taken them to defeat. And... We do know, I do know, that there was a pretty serious attempt going on behind the scenes last November to remove Miliband, and it failed. Johnson, Alan Johnson, wouldn't pick up the baton at that time. From that moment on, they had to shut up. They felt they had to shut up. Um, But you're dead right, they weren't happy with things that were going on, and we're seeing that now in virtually everything that they come out with. I mean, Yvette Cooper came out with that stuff in the FT the other day, uh, about Miliband's business policy uh, and how Discerning she'd found it, it yeah. uh, unacceptable at the time, and yet she went along with it, as did um, Ed Balls, who was the shadow chancellor at the time. Robbie Miller. But it, it's very difficult to know what they're dis- what Andy, Liz and Yvette are disagreeing with Ed about. I mean, it all seems very tactical, small beer stuff, which I suspect most 
Times readers, if they're like me, what kind of thing. I can't remember what Labour's business policy was. So they can no, remember that it was basically anti-business yeah, and critical. I, and until some of these people come up with this sort of idea which is supposed to be pro-business, so it, 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 it's but, all very, very kind of Westminster and yeah. doesn't break through. My view would be that Labour med, made a lot of voters feel slightly uneasy about working for big business. And don't think you should make people feel embarrassed about working for a big bank or another big corporate because that's the employment that you get. And those messages, which are kind of subtle, need to be something that Labour pays attention to over the next five years. OK, we must move on to our um, third topic, which has been suggested by you, Robbie, in the case of Geoffrey Spector, um, a 50-year-old British man who had an inoperable tumour on his spine. He, he wasn't paralysed at the time he went to um, the Dignitas Clinic to end his life, mm. but he feared paralysis. Um, and you, you worry as to why he had to travel abroad for a treatment you think should be available yeah. here. Well, the man himself said, I'm going too early because of the law in the UK. If the law was changed, I would not be doing it today, which is makes you very sad because this is a man who had to say goodbye to friends and families, go to Switzerland, probably maybe a year, two years, three years be before he would have liked to have done. I just think that's cruel. And then when you hear about people who are further down the slippery slope towards death, actually paralysed. The fact that they have to organise themselves to travel, often in great pain, to another country and be away from their friends and family, it just seems really cruel. I, I, I think sort of the whole uh, euthanasia debate is going to be sort of a bit like the, the abortion debate in the 60s and 70s, about the right to control your own body. So far, I think politicians have not been very brave in dealing with them. A lot of uh, campaigners on the other side to, to you, and including, including the Times, which in Wednesday's paper set out the case against um, an assisted uh, right to assisted dying of some kind. The, the concern is that once you move to the current situation where life is almost sacrosanct mm. and protected, once you introduce a right to die, it can, for some people, become a duty to die. Once people are aware, people, a lot of vulnerable people, a lot of disabled people, a lot of sick people, mm. perhaps already feel a burden on their relatives. And not all relatives are kind-hearted and generous. Some will be perhaps greedy to inherit the family yeah. home. There are, as we know, huge burdens on the pensions and health mm. system. Once you've introduced a right to die, aren't you giving a green light for those people who feel a burden? Aren't we sending them a message that somehow not choosing that right is, is in somehow selfish? No, I don't think so. I mean, the closest bill to the one that Lord Faulkner's trying to push through, the assisted dying bill, is in Oregon, the Death with Dignity Act. And as far as I can see, about 30,000 people a year die in Oregon. And of those, about 80 deaths are through a physician-assisted uh, physician death. So it's not a huge number, but I just think it gives people a great reassurance towards the end when they're facing great misery or pain that there can be a clean exit. Anne Ashworth. I wish that there were some easy answers to this because whatever solution we come to, because I sense that this is going to become a very live topic and there will be support 
for Lord Faulkner, there will be no satisfactory solution and that we need to be ready for that outcome, that as many people will be unhappy about it as will be thinking that it's a sign of progress in society. I tend to feel, and I'm going to speak very personally here, that wonderful, nice people will be so worried about being a burden to the National Health Service, to their family, that they will assent to this before they need to and before they should do. And that remains my position. Tremendously happy that it's all going to be debated again, because I think on this, as on various other moral dilemmas, we have probably progressed since it was last discussed. However, my view is that I think some people will feel a sense of responsibility to take away the responsibility of looking after them from the health service what, and what, what from their families. What do you say to, to Robbie's point, though, that a similar law to one being proposed by Lord Falkland has operated in Oregon and that actually the small percentage of people who've taken advantage of the law and total numbers of death suggests that perhaps those like me who share your worries about the slippery slope, it hasn't taken off as um, a, a, a duty to die. Well, as this gets discussed, I hope we're going to hear from the lawmakers in Oregon as to how they drafted this and as to how the decision making happens in those very last weeks. Mm because this will be an issue where the bureaucracy has to be reliable and the process has to be has to stand the closest scrutiny because if it's made in hurried way in a hospital when somebody's in great pain i do not see that as satisfactory is one of the um, consequences of there being a tory majority government phil rather than a coalition that actually any movement on the on a right to die is less likely because you had Norman Lamb, for example, the Lib Dem mm. health minister, former health minister, and now a leadership candidate, mm -hmm. he was very much in favour of this, and he would have perhaps pushed it to have some sort of government time. Whereas in Jeremy Hunt, the Tory health secretary, and David Cameron, you have opponents of yeah. of this. It's it's something that a prime minister who doesn't want to have unnecessary divisions with a small majority, he's not going to push this, is he? No, and I I mean it's one of those. This is possibly one of the the biggest conscience issue vote of all. There's no par party political thing here at all. And it does matter, you, though, whether governments give it, things time, absolutely. doesn't it? You yeah. can, you, I mean, usually um, matters like this, uh, much smaller issue, but something like Sunday trading could only ever go through with a government bill. Um, and certainly uh, uh, something like this, uh, or the abortion or whatever, could only go through with the government giving time. So I think Anne is right in that during this parliament, clearly there will be further backbench attempts to do this. I, I would guess that in the ballot for the Queen, uh, after the Queen's speech, somebody will pick up this bill uh, and, and, and go with it again, and it'll be debated for another year, and then next year probably somebody else will do it again. Things may move on during this parliament without us getting any nearer a piece of legislation. and. I, personally, I'm, I'm, I'm torn. I think people should, I believe in choice, and I believe people should be able to choose what they want. But I'm also worried particularly here about the bur extra burden you place on the medical profession here. If, the, if there is, uh, the, the, the medical profession believes its duty is to protect life under all circumstances. And if you introduce a right to die into that equation, it's a, I think it's quite a serious problem when you get to the 
uh, the sort of end point of an illness for doctors. I know, I'm pretty sure that in old people's homes, some people are sometimes left to, you know, when they are going towards the end of their life, the, there's no great decision taken, it just, it just happens. Mm. With, with something like this, I think to put that extra pressure on, on doctors is, is, is quite hard. Finally to you, Robbie, um, you brought this topic up. In what circumstances would you allow a right to die? Would it be terminal illness? Would it be, would there be a broader definition of suffering that you think ultimately we should be in charge of our destiny? I think the, the, the Lord Faulkner bill probably gets it right just in terms of people who are suffering from a terminal illness and as long as their will is settled. But ultimately, I mean, th I think that would make probably the best law, safest law. But um, on a very on a moral level, I kind of think it ought to be a lot wider. But I, I know that wouldn't fly. As long as I, there's, I don't think sort of hanging in there forever is necessarily a dignified way of living. We've scratched the surface of a, of a very important topic, but thank you for raising it, Robbie Millen. Thank you too to Anne Ashworth, Phil Webster, Dave McGuire, my producer. Thank you most of all to you for listening. I should say some of, the, some of you who are Times uh, subscribers, um, if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral, um, I'll post not only a iTunes link to this podcast so you can subscribe to it and never miss an edition, I'll also put some links to some back Background articles to the topics that we've been discussing, including that Wednesday leader on assisted living from the Times newspaper. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.